You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from me as I conclude our series called The Master. John chapter 13 this morning. We start in verse 34. This is taking place at the Last Supper, at the Passover Seder that Jesus is celebrating, his last opportunity of dinner with his disciples before his crucifixion and then his resurrection three days later. This is actually a pretty significant portion of Scripture. There's a few chapters here. So, it's, um, so it behooves us to hear what Jesus is saying. These are his final words to his disciples. Beginning in verse 34, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may, you may, ask, for, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, 
your final message to your disciples, we ask, Lord, that you would open our heart. That the words that you said 2,000 years ago to 12 ordinary men would become alive in our hearts as well here today now in this room. We pray your blessing on your word, on the words that you will speak this morning through me. And God, that we might be changed by hearing your voice in our hearts and in our minds. We love you, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a few stories this morning. I want to start off with the story of a young girl. This is a true story. This happened fairly recently, actually. It's the story of a young girl who was searching for something on the Internet. And her father went to the computer some days later and typed in Google. And you know how Google works, that it fills in the search, search blanks of things that you've searched for in the past. And what the father discovered was that his daughter had been searching for this phrase, how to keep him interested in me. And he realized that his young daughter, teenage years, was trying to keep a boy interested in her and was worried about him losing interest. And of course, this devastated the father because he is so interested in his daughter. He can't imagine his daughter trying to have someone else, have, trying to fight to keep someone else interested in her. But the truth is, is that the daughter was asking a question that every girl asks. Every girl is born with the same question. Every woman asks this question. In fact, you're probably asking it now, though you don't realize it. It's sort of like an operating system operating in the background. The question that every woman asks is, am I worth it? Am I worth it? And you may not even know that that was the question that you've been searching for your whole life, but every woman searches for that question. And we get our answers not from our mothers who give us life, but rather they come from our fathers. Our fathers are the ones that answer the questions, the deep questions of our souls. You might ask, well, what happens if, if there is no father? What happens if the father doesn't answer that question? What happens if the father is absent? Well, let me introduce you to another story of a boy named Kyle, a real man named Kyle, who asked this very question as well. He, he, did, he grew up without a father. And Kyle went journeying in life, uh, kind of dabbling in all sorts of things. And Kyle's a very perceptive person. So what Kyle realized was that all the things he was getting into, all the things that were harming him, were because deep down he was asking a question. He was asking a question that his father should have answered. Because every man asks this question, the question, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes? And like women, men, we get our questions answered from our fathers as well. They're the ones that validate us, the ones that tell us that we are good enough. Our mothers give us life. Our fathers tell us that you can do it. You are good enough. So you can imagine what happens in a society like ours, where 50% of marriages end in divorce, and where fathers are absent a lot of times, and in societies where some kids don't even know their fathers. You can imagine what might happen in that society where fathers don't answer the questions that are longing deep inside of us. Am I worth it? Am I good enough? In fact, I think that every person acts in a way looking for the answer to these questions. Am I worth it? Or am I good enough? Do I have what it takes And many people try to solve that answer 
getting into lots of different things. And many times they're not as perceptive as, as Kyle, who deep down realized that the reason why he was doing the things he was doing was because he was wondering, am I good enough? Let me tell you another story today. It's the story of a fisherman. This story of a fisherman, he was just a regular guy. He lived in Israel 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus in the first century. Just this ordinary fisherman named Simon. But before I can tell you about Simon, let me tell you a little bit about society. See, there were really kind of two classes of people. There were the ordinary people, the working people, and then there were the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis. Now, this, this is where you wanted to be if you wanted to be someone, right? Because not only did it mean you were a religious leader, it meant that you were a legal leader. It meant that you were in politics as well. They were kind of wrapped into one. We sort of separate the three, but they were all in one. You might say, well, why do I want to look like that with a big bushy beard and funny looking hat? I don't know. But, <laughs> but that's where all the power was. That's, you've made it in life when you were one of these guys. So you had the ear of the Roman uh, leaders. You, you, you led the temple and the synagogues and, and things like this. Well, in order to get there, you had to go through a number of different schoolings, a number of different steps. It wasn't easy. It was, it was difficult. And most people could not afford to let their kids go into religious studies because they had to work in the family business. You had kids so that they could be free labor for you, in a sense. And... and um, and these guys, and these guys had gone through through so much schooling, so they start off at probably about the age of six, and they and they start learning, and um, and there's traditions that tell us that by the time if you kept going and you made it all the way through and you had what it took, by that time not only had you memorized the first five books of the Bible, but you've memorized the entire Old Testament. So that's uh, three-quarters of your Bible there that they've memorized. Why? Because in our society, we have Google. So the 21st century learner says that uh, a skill for the 21st century learner is that you never say, I don't know the answer to the question. You always say, I may not know now, but I can find it, thanks to Google, right? In their time, they would say, I know the answer to that question because I've memorized it because Google has yet to exist. And so not only do they memorize the entire Old Testament, they memorize the Talmud as well. That's the Jewish tradition. So for those of you who remember, are familiar with uh, Catholicism, you know that you have the Bible, right? Then you have the Catholic Catechism, right? So that's like them memorizing the Catechism. Remember, and all these traditions and everything that have to do with the Jewish faith. So basically, if you weren't one of these guys, you were just an ordinary guy. And, and, and about the age of... 30, one would become a rabbi. And so part of the schooling was that as a disciple, you would grow up, you would grow up, you would grow up in this tradition, and then you would apply to follow a rabbi. So think about it as an apprenticeship sort of thing. Think about, um, and, you would, and you would follow the, the particular leader that sort of struck you as, oh, I really like this guy's philosophy, I like this guy's way of life, I like his approach to scripture and to tradition. And so you go up to that, that rabbi and say, can I follow you? And the rabbi would say, he would start testing you and test your knowledge, and you would say, uh, he would say, yeah, you, you, you seem like you've got what it takes, I think you can become like me. Or he would say, sorry man, you just don't got what it takes, right? So, when we, what we see later on in scripture is we see this man named Simon. 
He's out, you know, just working the business, doing some fishing one day. And this rabbi comes up to him. This rabbi named Yeshua comes up to him and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now this would be very odd. You've got to think of Simon. He's probably sitting there like, why does this guy want me to follow him? And, and aren't I supposed to be the one that applies to follow this guy? Why is this guy inviting me to follow him? It must have been really confusing. But Simon agrees. Simon follows him. And pretty soon, this rabbi, Yeshua, Jesus, has a number of followers. And they're not biblical scholars by any means. He's got the fishermen. He's got the people that work for the government, the tax collectors. He's got people that want to overthrow the government, the zealots. So he's got this mixture of things. I just would, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in some of those campfire conversations <laughs> and some of the things they talked about and argued about and things like that. So he's got all of these misfits, all of these ordinary average Joes following him. What kind of rabbi is this? Well, as we've looked in our series of the, Ra- of the Master, I think they got more that they, than they bargained for. In the, John chapter 2, the first week we looked at this, we looked at the story of Jesus at this wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine. And you've got to think all of his disciples standing there watching this happen probably were like, what just happened? And then they're following along and Jesus spits in some dirt and he makes some mud with it and he puts it on this guy's eyes and his eyes are open. And they're probably saying to themselves, what did we follow? What did we get into? And one day they're out in the countryside and they start to get hungry. And all Jesus is brought, to, or all they have, the little boy brings Jesus five loaves of bread and two fish. And then Jesus starts breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it some more. And he keeps breaking it. And pretty soon they fed over 5,000 people and they still have 12 baskets of food left over. And you've got to think these disciples were like, oh man, what is going on? And then one day they're at this pool, this hospital outside the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus sort of takes a detour from what he, he would have been doing that day and being in the temple. And he goes and visits a sick man, this particular man who was paralyzed for a few decades. And he says to him, pick up your mat and walk. And the man's legs suddenly start working, and he walks away. And then one day, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick and die, has died. And so Jesus decides to, to venture back into the same region where his life has been threatened, because, you know, the, the people that change the world, their lives are often threatened, right? And so Jesus is changing the world and people are seeing that and his disciples start getting afraid because their lives are threatened too as long as they're standing next to this radical rabbi. So he ventures into Judea in this, in this, um, in this city called Bethany and, he, and, he, and he's there with his friends and he's mourning with them. And then they all stand by as Jesus goes up to this tomb where his friend Lazarus has been dead for four days and he yells into the tomb, Lazarus. Get up. And Lazarus, a dead man, wrapped in cloth, looking like a mummy, gets out and walks and lives again. Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. 
He had ordinary followers, but every rabbi in the town wanted to understand this guy. So they they would gather around and have crowds, and they'd ask him questions and things like that. And some of the rabbis, like Nicodemus, some of the scholars, they 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 would summon Jesus privately and have more of a civil conversation with him because everyone wanted to know who is this guy because no rabbi in history has had the amount of historical documents and things written about him more than this guy here. Everyone wanted to know. And isn't it ironic that the most dynamic, the most revolutionary rabbi in all of history had the most ordinary, regular people following him? No biblical scholars, just a bunch of average guys some fishermen, some government workers, some guys named the Sons of Thunder because probably they were, they were ambitious and a little hot-headed. And if you think about watching some of those fishermen sh- shows like The World's Deadliest Catch, you can sort of get an image of what those fishermen were kind of like, right? <laughs> Rough around the edges, not clean-shaven, not ni- the, the greatest words, So one night, they're out on a boat, as they often were, and all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking towards them. And once again, they probably thought, what what have I gotten into? I I can't even go home and tell anyone about this, because they'll, they'll think I'm nuts. And they're watching their rabbi walk on water, and they're probably like, I think we're hallucinating, I think we've been drinking too much seawater, I think we've been out here too long, who knows... And they're watching him walk and walk and walk. And then there's this man named Simon, who's no stranger to the waters. And suddenly a light bulb clicks in his head. And Simon realizes that if his rabbi called him and allows him to follow him, that means chances are that his rabbi believes that he can be like him. So Simon says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out in the water. Jesus says, come on out. And so Simon, who his name is also Peter because Jesus gives him the name Peter, he begins to walk on the water. And you've got to think, you never be in those moments where you're like, this is really happening. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, you know, I remember my wedding day like, this is really happening. <laughs> and Simon starts walking and he starts walking and he starts walking. And then I think Simon thought, This is really happening, right? And he starts seeing the wind and the waves and he freaks out. And then gravity starts taking its effect and he sinks into the water. And Jesus pulls him up and says, Oh, ye of little faith. But why? Simon was the one who got out of the boat. Nobody else got out of the boat. How how could Jesus correct him? I think... In order to understand a story, we might need to understand a little bit about Simon. So we're going to take a look at his Facebook page for just a moment. <laughs> Simon. It did take me a long time to do that. <laughs> Simon. Simon was probably the guy, you know, that would, he was, he was, he was hot-headed. He was compulsive. He did things, and uh, he never really thought twice about them sometimes. He said things without really thinking it through. 
I think he would have said something like, I just tried walking on water, epic fail, but at least I got out of the boat. Hashtag YOLO. <laughs> but think about it. Simon was the type of guy who got out of the boat. And even though he was the one that got out of the boat, Jesus chastises his lack of faith. There's that moment when Jesus starts talking about his, his upcoming death. And Simon does something reasonable. He says, not on my watch, Jesus. No way are you going to die. But what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. What? Jesus calls Simon. He says, get behind me, Satan. And here's this guy looking out for Jesus' best interest, or what we would think of was Jesus' best interest. He was probably the oldest of the disciples. So he probably had, well, he definitely had some leadership and some clout. And then, of course, there's that night, that night that right after Jesus has this conversation, or some hours after Jesus has this conversation with Simon and, and with the rest of the disciples, that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And all of a sudden, the Roman guard starts arresting Jesus, and Simon takes out his sword and chops off one of the soldier's ears. That's gutsy. That's like pulling a gun when there's a lot of cops around. (laughs) And Jesus takes the guy's ear and he puts it back on the soldier and he says to Simon, put away your sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So once again, Peter finds himself, Simon finds himself in the predicament of trying to step up and yet getting chastised by his master. And then there's this. There's this conversation at the Passover Seder. And I think if we had Twitter, it would look something like this. Simon would say, at the real Messiah, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Hashtag disciple for life. And Jesus, the real Messiah, would say, at I got game, because he was probably that, that type of guy who would say, his Twitter handle was I got game because he was a fisherman, right? He would, say, he would say, follow me. Later tonight, you'll disown me three times. And he probably used the eight and the two because he had to respect the 140 characters that are limited on Twitter. And he would say, hashtag reality check. So why was Jesus so hard? Why was he so hard on Simon? And not only that, but why, why specifically does he tell Simon this? What teacher tells their student By the way, tonight you're going to fail. You're going to take this test, but you're going to fail really bad tonight. What kind of teacher would do that? I think to understand that answer, we have to understand another story. We have to understand your story. Because in your story, you live in a particular world that has a particular philosophy. Your world's philosophy that you live in is that your humanistic performance is more important than your faith. Your humanistic importance is more your human your humanistic performance is more important than your faith because your performance validates your existence. Right? I mean think about it. You could say, well, I don't think that's right, but think about how this plays out in the world. You have job interviews and job performances, but if you don't perform, you don't work there. We live in a society where where abortion is legal where we can get rid of babies that don't meet our criteria, our need, right? So their performance validates their existence. It's true. And I think Jesus had to have a conversation with Simon 
Because Simon thought he could win Jesus' approval by his performance. So over and over and over again, he interjects, Simon comes up. And he says, I'm not going to let you do that, Jesus. Oh, I can do this. Watch me walk on water, Jesus. Watch me do this, Jesus. Watch me win your approval. And Simon had to learn that he was not Jesus' disciple because he was Simon Peter. Simon Peter was just an ordinary guy. He was Jesus' disciple because Jesus loved him and had a plan for him. Because Jesus was telling him over and over that the kingdom of heaven has a different philosophy. That your performance is worthless without your faith in Jesus. Your performance is worthless without your faith in Jesus because your relationship with Jesus is what defines your existence. Jesus says this in John 15, 5, in the same evening, in the same conversation, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is what we began with in week one. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Simon had to learn that. And Simon's life was changed when he learned that. So Simon becomes one of the greatest Christians as far as a Christian leader of all times. The things that he does, the things that he says, revolutionizes the church. And there were things that happened that were outside of Simon's control. Think about in the book of Acts, when he's visiting a Gentile. Now, if Simon were being Simon, he would say, I'm not walking into the house of a Gentile, but he does. And because he does... Gentiles begin receiving the Lord. And then he has to go explain himself. And you, and you see this change, this miraculous change in Simon's life, that before he was the one in control, and afterwards he was like, look man, I don't understand, but it's clear that God has a plan for us that we need to listen to. So we get to the end of John chapter 13, and what do we end up doing when we get to the end of chapters? We, we tend to stop reading, don't we? But if we stop reading at the end of John 13, we miss this beautiful nugget. Because Jesus has just told the disciples that he's just told Peter, you will deny me, you will disown me three times. And then he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Peter, you're going to disown me, you're going to fail so miserably tonight. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it beat you up. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. So heaven, Peter, is not based on your performance at all. And I'm going to prove it tonight. I'm going to die for you even though you disown me. I'm going to love you even when you screw up. Jesus says this, and he turns the conversation. This conversation starts to become more about the Father. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So why does Jesus turn the conversation about the Father? Why does this suddenly, become, this suddenly become important in the conversation? I think it became important because around that table sitting with Jesus were a bunch of men who were wondering, am I good enough? 
And where would they get the answer to that question? From their father. They're following a rabbi who suddenly seems to bring purpose to their existence. Before they lived ordinary lives and suddenly they're following Jesus and things are changing and things are happening and suddenly their rabbi is saying, I'm going away. And they're wondering, what are we going to do now? Am I good enough to keep going? So Jesus tells them this, in a sense. He says, if God the Father lives in Jesus and Jesus lives in you, then the Father lives in you. If God the Father lives in Jesus and Jesus lives in you, so don't worry. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm leaving you with a purpose, with the Holy Spirit. You know, I think that Jesus was telling them this evening and throughout their ministry this very important lesson. As every man says, am I good enough? Jesus' response would be something like this. No, on your own, you're not good enough. Because if, G- if we were good enough, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? So he says, but the truth is, you don't have to do it on your own because this isn't about you. It's about my life in you. In me, you're good enough. You've got what it takes, but only in me. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to do greater things than you've seen me do. The water into wine, the raising the dead man, the healing of the sick, you're going to do that as well. See, every one of us, we look for the answers to that questions, those questions in our hearts, in our minds. We search for them. We search them. We go to work because of them. We work and work and work and work and do things because deep down we have these questions. Many people turn to religion, which offers answers to the purpose of life, but only Jesus offers answers to the deep questions of the human heart. Because Jesus himself, when he created you, planted eternity in your human heart. That's why right now you're saying that question makes sense. That's the question I've been asking. I didn't even know I was asking that question. And yet it makes sense because eternity has been planted in your heart. When Jesus came, he had a purpose and he gave us this purpose statement. In Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus' purpose statement. As he's reading in a synagogue in Capernaum, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, in some cases, the Master came. And the Master came to heal the physically deformed and to raise the physically dead. He did that on some occasions. But in all cases, the Master came, and he still comes today, to offer meaning and purpose to the average and the outcast, to heal your broken heart, to free you from the slavery of sin, to rescue your soul, to be your father and answer the deepest questions of your heart. Because in the end, he is the only master worth having. You and I, we will have lots of bosses, Lots of people in authority, but we should only have one master.
because he is the only master worth having. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? As we turn our hearts to the Lord, I want to invite you to ask the master questions. This is something that you can do if prayer is not a big part of your life. This is something that you can do every, any moment. Especially when you see things that you wonder, why am I acting this way? Well, you're acting that way because a question has not been answered. So, Father, I turn to you for the validation of my life. Father, I want you to speak to me. Father, who do you say that I am? Father, how do you love me? Many of us have had fathers that failed us. Actually, all of our fathers fail us in one way or shape or form. We even fail our kids in some way. But we don't need to find the validation of our fathers as much as we need to find the validation in our heavenly fathers. Our fathers, our earthly fathers, can't live up to what our heavenly father places in our hearts. And so right here, right now, we can say, Father, I give my life to you. I ask you to answer the deep questions of my heart, even the questions I don't even know what they are. Tell me that I'm worth it. Tell me that I'm good enough and help me to only look to you. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.